Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Svarim Chatter Podcast. If you use Apple Podcasts, it would be a help if you can subscribe, rate, and or review. It greatly helps the podcast, and I appreciate it. Also, if anyone would like to sponsor an episode or to help support the podcast in any way and to defray costs and to help assist in continuing to bring quality-free content, please email svarimchatter at gmail.com. Also, if anyone has any questions or comments in any of the episodes, please email svarimchatter at gmail.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by De- uh, Professor Deborah Kaplan, who is Associate Professor of Jewish History at Bar-Ilan and the, the Director of the Halperin Center at Bar-Ilan. And she's the author of the book that we're discussing, the book today, um, The Patrons and Their Poor, Jewish Community and Public Charity in Early Modern Germany, published by Penn Press. So thank you, Professor Kaplan, for joining me. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Sure. So why don't I start off, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, in New York. I studied history at Barnard College in New York, and then I did my doctorate at the University of Pennsylvania. I taught at Yeshiva College and Bernard Revel Graduate School for nine years. And then in 2014, I made Aliyah with my family to Yerushalayim. And since then, I've been a professor at Bar-Ilan in the Jewish History Department. So when did you get into this subject? We'll, we'll, we'll get more into the, 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 the poor people, just in the charity in general overall, whether it's from actually, I shouldn't say poor, because there's rich people and poor people on, on both ends of charity and in the middle. But and in general, Pink SC, and maybe you'll talk a little bit just about those also, because those play a big part. Obviously, I'll, I'll just give a plug to the podcast. I did a podcast with Professor Elisheva Kalbach about Pink SC also, but just maybe we can just um, discuss a little bit in general about, about that. Absolutely. So uh, I'm a social historian and my interests are in daily life. What do regular Jewish men, women and children do? What do they eat? What do they wear? Where do they go? How does their kahila look? And I'm really interested in how they lived. Now, this project, as you said, is about charity. And it actually grew out of my first book project. Um, My first book is called Beyond Expulsion. And I, I won't talk about it now on this podcast. But it deals with the Jews in the region of Alsace, which is on the border. Today, it's in France, but then it was in Germany, and the relationship to the city of Strasbourg. Now, one of the things that's really interesting that that came out of that research was when you look at Jewish communities in that area, they live in towns and in villages, not in cities. And there's one, two, three families in every community, and that's it. And so their communal life is very different than what you might expect. There is no shul, there's no rabbi, there's, there's no infrastructure. And this led me at the end of that book to sort of think, okay, so what is a Jewish community? We have these very romantic pictures of what a Jewish community looks like. We, we imagine that to be the past. So they, they all look in our minds the same way. They have a mikvah, they have a place for, for shechita to buy meats, and they have shuls, maybe they have more than one shul, they have a mikvah. But I, I started wondering, what was it like? And not just what was it like, because I realized it was different in different places, but also... Who lived there? What was it like for all the different kinds of people that lived there, the poor people, the wealthy people? And so I started looking into these um, questions. Now, one of the best sources, as you mentioned, for studying this is really the genre of Pinkasim. I'll say a few words about what a Pinkas is. Uh, For those that didn't listen to uh, Professor Carl Roth's wonderful podcast, which I also very much enjoyed. So um, a Pinkas is a logbook. Um, that is used by basically uh, in, in German Jewish communities, every communal official will have a logbook to record all of the things that he does for the Kehillah. The truth is, is that it just means a notebook 
And I think that every Balabite had his own pincast in his house to write about his household. So on a communal level, the Gabbai Tzedaka would have a pincast, the Shamash would have a pincast, the, the Parnassim would have a pincast of the Kahal. And in this, they would write down their decisions, the takanot of the Kihila, the rules, uh, different things that came up. In my case, what I worked on, the finances. And so these sources really detail in, in every way the inner workings of the Kihila, and they were a natural source uh, for me to work on. And so I, I got into it uh, about 12 years ago, almost 13, and um, I've been working on it ever since. It's really wonderful, wonderful material. It's from my time period. Pinkasim begin in the 16th century, and um, I worked on the 16th, 17th, and 18th century in the book we're talking about today. So is, is the book is specifically focuses on three communities um, in Germany, Worms, Frankfurt, and Ahu, which is three in and of itself, Alten, Hamburg, and Wandsbeck. So I guess give a, just before we even start discussing the actual charity topic, we should, and your book does do this very nicely. It gives an overview of the communities as a whole and at the time. So I guess give a overview of each community up until that time and at the time period. Sure. Um I, I'd like to just start by saying that all three of these communities are urban and all of them are in the Western part of Ashkenaz. So they are similar. And I want to now in my description, talk a little bit about how they're different and, and why one would study three different communities at the same time. So uh, first let's start with the community of Frankfurt. Frankfurt is one of the oldest and most important uh, German Jewish communities. There was a community there in the middle ages already uh, in, in the 12th century. Uh, there was uh, violence and, and in the 13th century, so the community was destroyed in 1241. They come back later in the 13th century. And one of the things that's really unique about Frankfurt is that the Jews lived there from the 13th century, really up, and, up, up until the Holocaust. And now, of course, uh, again, but there was a, a major interruption. Now, um, what's interesting about the period that I study is that the Jews in Frankfurt live in one street, it's called the Judengasse, the Jewish street. It's locked and the, during the night, and it's open during the day. And when I say a street, I want to give a, a real picture. It's 330 meters long, which is about 1,000 feet long. It's about 12 to 16 feet wide, so it's tiny. And by the 18th century, you have 3,000 Jews living in houses, really on top of each other in this one street. So it's the biggest Jewish community in this area. It's got very interesting... Um, way of uh, sort of spatial aspect, uh, but it's a very old community. The second community I studied is Worms. In Worms, there also is a, a Yudengasa, but it's a smaller community. It's a more spacious Yudengasa also, and has about 700 people. It also had a community going back a, a very long time. If you go to the Worms Cemetery today, you can see uh, Matsevas from, from the 11th century, from before the First Crusade. So it's one of the oldest Jewish communities like Frankfurt, but much smaller. And then you have Ahu, uh, which as you said, is it's out three different communities. Ahu stands for Altona Hamburg Wandsbeck. And the Ashkenazim there um, in, in these different places in Hamburg, which was a city in Germany, Altona and Wandsbeck, which were cities and a town, a very small town, right nearby under the Danish crown, united in the 17th century to make one kihila. Now, this was a completely new kihila in the early modern period. It did not exist in the, in the uh, Middle Ages whatsoever. The first Jews come at the end of the 16th century, uh, Portuguese Jews, and the Ashkenazim come in as their domestic servants. So if you look before 1648, uh, there's about 18 families there. 
And if you look uh, in 1725, there's 200, I think 208, if I'm not mistaken, families in Ahu. And so it's this major explosion. And this is because Altona, Hamburg, these are port cities. So there's a lot of migrants, some of them Jewish, some of them refugees actually from Tachvatat uh, in the east from the Cossack uprising, and they come to Hamburg. So why look at all these different communities together? On the one hand, they're all similar. They're all cities in Germany uh, that are large and important. And so you can see across communities what's happening with, with Jewish charity. By the same token, you can look at local variations, a smaller community, a newer community, an older community. And I tried to balance that out in the book uh, to give a local a sense of the local variations and also the bigger, broader picture. Were the communities connected in any way, or are you just like you said, you just pick these three? Uh, well, it's not it's not random. These are these are if you had to pick three urban Jewish communities in the West, these would be them. And that's because for a big part of this period, many of the Jews live in small towns and villages outside of the cities. So these are probably the most important kehilot. Frankfurt and Worms, which are closer together, have uh, very strong relations. But there are also relationships between these communities and Ahu. So you, one of the files that I worked with in the archives in Yerushalayim is actually letters between uh, the Parnassim, the lay leaders of these different communities to one another who are writing about all kinds of things back and forth, charity, other things. And so they are definitely connected uh, and they're the most important centers. And because of that, they have uh, tremendous amounts of Pinkasim, which is wonderful for me as a scholar of history to really sit and work with. Right. And to clarify, in Hamburg, like you said, it really started off with the Portuguese Jews as far as that's not what you're focusing on here. No, I focus on the Ashkenazic Jews. Um, actually, the, the Sephardic Portuguese Jews have their own sets of records. And even in the in the city archives, when you look at how the Christian authorities dealt with the Jewish community, they deal separately with the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim. And they write them separate letters and they have separate files and, and they treat them as two separate entities and they have different rights as well. So I focused only on the Ashkenazic communities. Perfect. So one last question before we jump into the charity aspect. Um, I mentioned to you before, I had a friend mentioned to me, and he's like, what, what, what time period is this book? I mean, or help orient the listeners. Who were the Rabbanim in these towns? You know, not that that's always a perfect way for everybody, but just maybe that's helpful. What, what, what are we talking about on discussion here in this these time periods? And even though it's so, a wide yeah. time period. It's a wide time period. I would say just the book deals with 1500 to 1750. So we've got 250 years of, of rabbis and um uh, there are some very famous ones for this time period. I'll throw out a few names. The Chavos Yair, who becomes the rabbi in, in Worms. Of course, his father, uh, Moshe Shimshon Bachlach, was the rabbi in Worms before him, also in this period. There was a uh, rabbi Toomim in between them. Uh, this is a time period of the Chacham Tzvi. This is right before the Emden Eibeschutz controversy. Um, in the book, I talk a little bit about... Uh, uh, from Altona, and I talk also about the Chavos Yair, who has some very interesting chuvos about Pinkasim uh, that I discuss at the end of the book. So that's that's the time period. And of course, Frankfurt and debate Dean were, were always very important in this. That was the base Dean to go to um, for all kinds of disputes during this time period. Right. Now, okay, so I think now, now we'll move on to charity. So, and the book does this as well, which is gives an overview of charity in early modern Europe and especially in the Jewish communities. I think just orient the uh, listeners a little bit overall on the use of charity and how it functioned at that time. 
So um, charity in this time period and what we call the early modern period is one of many aspects of life that's changing. This is a period of time that's interesting to me. It's, it seems sort of probably to the listeners, why study 1500 to 1800? That seems sort of random. This period is actually fascinating because it's a period in which so much changes and that still remains today. One example is the printing press. Another example is record keeping. But a third example, the one that I'm studying, is really charity. And um, it's in this period that we see charity becoming standardized. Now, I dealt with this within the framework of the Jewish community. So we see Gabaim, which is a concept that, of course, goes back uh, very, very early. Uh, obviously, you can see that already in Mishnah and Talmud. But you see a very specific format and structure for Gabaim to work, for Parnasim, the, the lay leaders of the community to work, different Gabaim on different funds, who has the keys to the Kupat Sakah. And most of all, uh, a lot of record keeping. Every Gabai must keep very, very precise records of every transaction. And so everything in this period becomes very standardized, also very institutionalized. You have new institutions, Hekdesh, the, the hospice that hosts the poor and the ill are built um, and more and more rules are enacted about these institutions. So that's what's happening at this time. And it's not just happening in the Jewish world. One of the things that I try to show in the book, even though my focus is the Jewish world, is that this is happening everywhere. Um, scholars of this period have shown that in Catholic communities and Protestant communities, you're seeing these trends, standardization, institutionalization, record keeping and paperwork. And we see the very same trends happening in the Jewish communities of these areas. So you mentioned there um, a hectish, what it is, and that comes up a lot in the book. I think we should, before we start, I, I think it's a good idea to orient the, the, the listeners a bit. I keep saying that, but I think it, it's accurate about just actually translate a couple of vocabulary words to them. What Absolutely. is the parnes? What was that? We'll talk about the hectish a little. What was the gabay tzedakah? Was it just like today people may be familiar with the gabay tzedakah, but what did it entail then? So mainly those three, I'm, there are others that I'm forgetting of, and there's many terms in the book that you explain, but just, I think those are pertinent to talk about. Great. So let's let's start with the parnasim. In an early modern Jewish community, you have two different kinds of leaders. Now, obviously they work together, but they're separate. One is the Rav. So we talked a little bit about who the rabbis of, of the Gedolim were. Um, but alongside the rabbi, you had a lay leadership. These are wealthy men who run the community. And you might say, well, that sounds just like it is today. There are a few wealthy Balabatim that influence the community. It's not exactly the same. These communities are very highly controlled. The Parnasim are wealthy men. They make decisions and rules for the Kihila. They interface with the Christian authorities about the daily business of the Kihila. And they have a tremendous amount of control. And they try to regulate very many aspects of not only communal life, but even toward the 18th century of what you might think of as very private aspects of an individual's life, what clothing they would wear, what food they would bring into their house, how things should be done. Uh, these are called takanot, and we find them among other places in Pinkasim. So the, the Parnasim are, are really the lay leadership of uh, Kihila. And they are among those who keep what we call the Pinkas Kahal, the log book, the general log book of the Kihila. Now, another official, there are many officials, we could talk just about officials, but I will, I'll talk about the Gavit Saka, the Gavit Saka. The Gabbai Tzedaka is also extremely important. He is also very wealthy. And this is because when a community does not have enough money in the, in the Kupav Tzedaka and they can't pay and they need money to support uh, the poor or other causes, 
he's expected to pay out of pocket. So you need a very wealthy person to be able to do that. And the Gabbai Tzedakah, um, often someone becomes a Gabbai Tzedakah in order to become a Parnas in some of these communities. So you start off as a Gabbai and then you work your way up to being a Parnas. Um, it's a job with a tremendous amount of responsibility. They too kept a very interesting Parnas, uh, Pinkasim. So I've worked extensively with their logbooks. If you can imagine a Pinkas that has on one page uh, all of the income that he got during the week and on the facing page, all of the expenses, everything that he paid out to this poor person, to that person. We're talking about exquisitely detailed records. And one of the log books I worked on from, from Worms has, um, it, it, it's organized by Parsha Shavua. So you'll have every single week, a list of the money he took in, the money that came out. And then every quarter, he adds it all up. And, and I'll just say in parentheses, there's always a deficit. They're always giving out much, much more than they have. And so it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous responsibility to be a Gabbai Tzaka. You have to write down every transaction. There are always at least at least two in a Jewish community of this size or these, these sizes, even in Worms, they work together. There are rules, like I said, about who has the key, who has the book, when do they open the kupa that's outside the shul. They write everything down. And in some of the communities, what they write down is even audited. So this is something very, very serious. It's a tremendous responsibility and probably takes out a tremendous amount of time as well. Now, you also asked me about the hektish. The word hektish has many, many meanings in this time period. It's something that shifts from time to place. But the way we'll use hektish in the podcast will be um, to talk about what we might call a hospice. It's a building in the Jewish community. That's a mix between a hospital for sick people and in that hosts poor people traveling from the outside um, and sometimes poor from the community itself. It develops, it shifts over time. So in Frankfurt, it starts out that local poor can go there. And then by the end, local poor go elsewhere. And this is only a place for foreign poor. And we'll talk later on about the different kinds of poor people that were in Jewish communities. But imagine a building, it's often uh, near the shul or near the cemetery on the margins of the kihila. And this is a place where poor people could go and sick people could go. That format of sick and poor being in the same place is one that we also find in, in Christian communities in this period in Europe. So you uh, kind of alluded to Gabbai Tzedakah. You'd have to be, it's like a stepping stone, the Gabbai Tzedakah and then a Parnas. And, and you said it's obviously a big covet also. It's a big honor for them to yes, do absolutely. These, these jobs. They all were coveted. Um, now, I think as a, as we start to discuss the book more in depth is the Gabbai Tzedakah. What was the Gabbai Tzedakah's job exactly? What was their, you, just, you alluded to the structure, but what was that overall structure in general in these communities of the Gabbai Tzedakah, who they collected from, who they gave the money to and and, and more like that? Okay, so the, the Gabbai Tzedakah um, is somebody who is appointed. You said it's a coveted position. I think on the one hand, this is true. Uh, people absolutely want this job because it's, it's a kavod. And just to further that point, um, in, in two of these communities, when you become Gabbai Tzedakah, and there's a new Gabbai Tzedakah always installed on, on, on Hanukkah, you you make a big dinner for all of the who's who of the community, all of the Parnassim come, and there's fancy food. And of course, they dictate the menu and have to have soup and then you have to have wine and this meal is milkshakes and this meal is flesheks and it's it's very very elaborate and it's very detailed and regimented so that gives you and the listeners a sense of of 
of what it's like to live in an early modern community. They're telling you what to have at Kiddush. Um, and not because it's uh, the minhag, it's because, you know, that's how it has to be. So, so the Gabbai Tzedakah has a few jobs. One of his jobs is to collect money um, after somebody gets an aliyah or to collect money when somebody has a burial, or to collect money when somebody, maybe we'll talk about this a little later on, when somebody is inscribed in the communal memorable, which is a book of the names of all of the, the dead of the community. And also all the money that's put into the kupot right outside the shul, the men's shul and the women's shul, there are two entrances, and you have a kupa stationed at each, and a few times a year, again, the times are set, they open the box and they empty it out. So that's the collecting part. I would add to this um, that the wives of the Gabay Tzedaka were also involved. So sometimes people donated material goods, which are very precious in this period. And, and you have linens or towels or sheets or clothing that's donated. The wives of the Gabay Tzedaka are going to be those who wash it, uh, fold it, organize it, and put it into the hectish where it is used to take care of these poor, sick people that come uh, to stay. And so that's on the, the sort of collecting side. On the distributing side, they really have a lot of leeway in deciding which poor people to give money to and how much people need. And there's a lot of autonomy in these decisions. But at the same time, as I said earlier, they need to write it all down. And so a pink house will have the most tiny details that you wouldn't imagine. Like, I gave so-and-so money for a wagon and I gave him also money for a sofa so we could pay for X. Or I gave um, money for matzah before Pesach to the following eight Jews, this much matzah to this Jew and this much matzah to that Jew. Or there was a poor boy and I gave him uh, tefillin or tzitzis or whatever. And we have the names of these individuals. Um, and it's all extremely detailed and it must be extremely detailed because it's checked later. And, you know, as I said, they have the financial responsibility of making up the deficit if there's not enough money. Right, an early version of Excel spreadsheet, almost. Absolutely, absolutely. That is what it looks like. It's very neat. And uh, you have a detailed line and a column of, of, of which they add up, just like a, it's a manual Excel spreadsheet. And also, I would say, I would add, you're talking about the Pranasim and the Gavit Stuck, and they dictate the menu, et cetera. Obviously, like you're saying, different, the community is different, but uh, as someone, my mom, my mother is a German, and yaki, it sounds very German. It sounds very yakish, the whole, the whole dictating exactly what to eat and all those things. So, um, now, how, how was the, the book also outlines a lot of how Tadaka, how charity was used to, as one would imagine, confer a, a benefit or a sub, sort of like a chashiva as well. This person had to give a covet to the person that gave the tzedakah. But on the, and so we'll, you should talk about that. But on the flip side, I think we should mention now already, it was also used to punish individuals, publicly shaming them. And they had different meaning ways to enforce the tzedakah because it wasn't, we're not only talking, we should mention this also, I know there's a lot in this question. So we, um, but it, we, we weren't, it wasn't just give tzedakah, it's a nice thing to do. This is also something that the community had to do. There was it was like almost taxes on them, right? So, a hundred percent. Let me try to break what you set up into different parts and and expand. And feel free to to jump in and 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 direct as you as you would like me to expand even more. So the first thing I, I maybe I should say is that one of the things I try to do in the book is to use the issue of tzedakah as a lens into the entire Jewish community, and one of one of the reasons this works, and maybe later on I'll talk about another reason that this works, but one of the reasons that this works is because 
If you want to understand the Kahila and its operational budget, you need to look at Staka. Today, we think, like you said, Staka is a nice thing to do. It's a chesed, it's a mitzvah. But in our mind, it's very clear what's staka and what's not staka. What's taxes? What's a punishment? What's a? These are not mixed categories for us, except if I could say, uh, let's say in the U.S., you you can get a credit for for charity on your taxes. There is a relationship, but that relationship was much more complicated in the early modern period. So let me start with with tax with with charities of tax. Um. Let me first, let me go back a little bit, actually. The Kahila, as I said, when I talked about the, the, the Gabbai Tzedakah and his log book, is always at a deficit. Now, this is because they pay extremely high taxes to Christian authorities. There are tremendous expenses associated with being a Jewish community. And there are many, many poor people coming for support. There's just not enough money in the budget. And so categories are not the way that we might think they would be. I'll give you an example. You asked earlier about the Gabbai stuck on his jobs, and I forgot to mention that aside from all the collecting, distributing, he also has another job. He's in charge of the shul. And this is because um, you might think, isn't the shamash in charge of the shul? No, the Gabbai stuck is in charge of the shul, and this is because so much charity is collected in the shul that it makes sense that he's also in charge of the shul. What do I mean by that? Let's imagine a window is broken in the shul, and so he has to call a glazier to fix the window. He'll call the glazier, the Gabbai Tzedakah himself, and he will pay for that, that repair out of the Tzedakah pile, not out of the communal budget. And so these budgets, while very regulated, as I said, are, are delineated differently from how we might think. So that's the first piece. Now, um, charity, therefore, can be used in, in different ways and, and is connected to, to many of these things. And therefore, uh, for example, let's say somebody does something and offends a Parnas, offends one of the, uh, the, the leaders of the community. And there's a wonderful example of this uh, that comes to mind from Frankfurt, where there's a Jew who insults the Parnasim and he makes fun of them publicly. And so first they say, no more kibbutzim in the shul for you. That's the first thing they're going to shame him with no kibbutzim. But the second thing they do is actually very interesting. They say, you have to pay this extraordinary fine. It's 25 rech salar, which is a lot of money. To the to the Kupa of Tzedakah. Now you might say, why does it go to the Kupa of Tzedakah? Why doesn't it go to the general communal fund? Was there a general communal fund? Yes, but you send the money to the Tzedakah fund. Many, many punishments go pay it to the Tzedakah fund, pay it to the Tzedakah fund. And so while we might think of it as something that you do out of, that the charity is something that you do out of, uh, out of a decision to do a mitzvah, here it's a penalty, it's a knas. And you often see in a pinkasim knas lekupatzaka, a penalty for the charity box. So that's that's a, a, an aspect of charity as a fine and is connected to shame. Um, I will say also that the flip side of that is, of course, that charity is connected to honor, and this is something that I think is is probably less surprising to the listeners. Because if you think about today, when you go to a shul dinner, it's raising money for the shul and it's honoring somebody. So honor and charity go hand in hand. Or you walk into a hospital wing and there's somebody's name on the front door. That's a donor. He gave money. So he gets the kavod of being the hush of a guy who gave the yeshiva or gave the shul or the mikvah or whatever. Um, but what you have, what you have in the early modern period is also a very similar system where charity is, is giving honor to the donors. And it, we see it in various ways. We see it, let's say, every person that gets an aliyah is going to have to pay money to the charity fund. He has to do that. And when I say he has to do that, it's not because it's expected. 
he must do so because if he doesn't, it's written in the Pinkas. They know exactly who had an Aliyah when. And if you don't pay up, you can't marry off your children. You have, your kid wants to get engaged. They say, hold on a second. Do you owe any money to the tzedakah fund? And so it's very regulated. Again, you see the mix of honor for the aliyah and making sure almost like a tax that it's paid. Um, I'm saying many examples that have to do with men and shul, just to throw out there that this is true also of female donors who also have jobs in a shul. Um, maybe we'll talk about that a little later, but this is, this is also the case. Um, I'd like to bring one more example if it's okay. And that is um, the example that I mentioned very briefly uh, in, our, in our discussion. That is the example of, of Memor Bukhur, uh, which I think is the most clear way to see how charity and honor are so connected in this time period. And um, a Memor Bukh is a, is a volume in which it's, it's kept in the shul. And in, in it, you inscribe the names of all the important people of the community. Really, in, in the communities I worked in, married men and women who were members of the community. And every person's name is written in the book when they die. And not only is it written there, the reason it's in shul is because the names are read out on Shabbos after, uh, right before Musaf. And so on the one hand, it's Ilu it's, Neshama. It's, it's you, you read this first for the Neshama. And on the other hand, it's part of a family honor and prestige. This is very clear in how the Memor Bukhar written, people put in their ancestors. You have an example of a guy from Worms who makes sure that his great-grandfather is put into the book also. Um, and these people are really inscribed in exchange for what habits this have to do for tzedakah, in exchange for having given money to the tzedakah kupa when they die. And even if they themselves don't do it, their heirs do it for them because it's you can't not be in the memor book. And just, I would, I'd like to give your listeners a sense. What am I even talking about? I'm talking about in Frankfurt, a book that weighs 28 pounds. It's over 500 pages. It starts in 1628 and it goes all the way to 1901. And at one point in, in 1711, there's a giant fire that, that rages through Frankfurt and destroys the community. And somebody the very next year pays somebody to go through all of the records of the Hever Kedisha and reconstruct the whole memory book because they, they must have it and they must say the names of those from before. They don't want to start now. Okay, we'll start now in 1712. They want to go back as far as they can and say all those names. And people, of course, in the Holocaust ran on Kristallnacht to save these books. And, and that's why we have them today in the archives. It's just, it's just very rich material about individuals and uh, very much indicative of the importance of writing, of honor, and of charity. To be, to be clear, how many names did they read on a given Shabbos then? This is an amazing question. Um, it's very unclear. The records don't always tell us. Uh, I can tell you that um, there were certain Shab Shabbosim where they really have uh, only the names of martyrs from a certain event, like the First Crusade or the Black Death. But... Um, other times they seem to have read a lot of names. And there's an example from Prague, which is beyond the scope of my book, where, where the Kehillah members complain about how long it is. And so they, they shorten the names. They don't read all the names all the time. And so I think as these books get longer, it's clear that they are only reading part of it. I'll add one more thing. Don't think that in these memoir books, it just has the name. As time goes on, and this is also connected to honors, there are very elaborate entries about every Jew male and female, 
what they did, what chevrot they belonged to, what chesed they did. These can be a page long for some people. So I think it just in terms of the tircha de tibura that, that you're hinting at, it's clear that when they read them out loud, they're not reading page long. And she was in this society and that society. But for the historian, this is absolutely wonderful material. You can sit and learn about people you never would have heard of. Very interesting and um, informative entries about what they did and how they wanted to be perceived. Right. And, and that's very interesting. So a lot, a lot of this, and I'm going to mention something else. A lot of this is, is interesting. I hope the, the, it, the stuff, everything's interconnected here. So you alluded to marriage and that's something that really struck me reading the book. It, you know, two people couldn't just say we're going to get married or the parents couldn't just say we're marrying off the kids to each other. That's not exactly how it works. I know that it has to do with charity, as you mentioned, and you talked about it and you talk about it in the book. So I guess mention that. And that's going to go right into um, right? What does it mean being part of a community? And then that will bring us to, I mean, we won't get through you. I'm just going to mention that will get us to who, which poor were given money. But I guess first, just to pick up on the marriage part, just for a second. Okay. So um, there are different, let me say one word as background of how we're talking about charity. And all of a sudden we got to marriage. So I can, I can try to bring it together for the listeners who are thinking, what is this book about? Um, as I said earlier, I, I use charity as a window into the Jewish community. And I said one reason that this works is because it's central to the operating budget of the Kihila. But another reason this works is because charity gives us an in both to the very poor people and to the wealthy people and to the middle people who could be more modest donors. And it brings us into the world of men and into the world of women. And so it's a wonderful tool for looking at the community. And that's how we get to all these diverse topics like food and marriage and shul, which is why I love it because um, I'm a social historian. I want to know what it was really like. Now, um, marriage was very important in a kahila. When you got married, that was the thing that gave you status. Without it, for example, you weren't in the memoir book. Without being married in Frankfurt, you couldn't, as a, as a young man, work um, in most professions. You needed to be married in order to have your own independent economic uh, household. And this was true also in Christian communities. Marriage is an extremely important status. And because of that, um, it becomes a place where the kihila can leverage some, some power to collect on debts, debts that are for pledges to charity or a knas that wasn't paid, or even just communal taxes. Maybe you're behind the new taxes. Your child is not going to get married until, or if you're a widow or a widower, you're not going to get remarried until the bill is paid. And it's interesting because you need permission uh, from the from the Rav to have a shidduch. And of course, the rabbi is in charge of marriage. He is going to be your Masadar Kedushin. There's not a lot of um, choice. The, the Rav of the community will be the Masadar Kedushin. And the Parnassim, this is an example of how Parnassim work with the rabbi, don't let you get married. And they don't let the rabbi marry you until your debts are paid. And it's wonderful because you see... For example, a shamash write down, so-and-so got engaged. We have to make sure that the debts are paid. And if you open a pinkas of the Gabbat Staka, you can see what they owe. And then you can see that the shamash says, now they paid. And then I assume that they got married. So it's a very interesting um, way to read the records together and piece together how this really worked. Uh, that's the marriage part. Right. And as you as you as you keep saying, and as we pointed out, the book is about charity and tzedakah, but using it as a lens to explore the overall communities at the time period. And so 
we, we, we get now to really, there's various different types of poor. You alluded to this earlier, who was being paid, which is every, any poor person came, I mean, even today you have, I mean, I live in America, you have people coming from it's all collecting, you have local people, organizations, you see who was being paid this money. And you talk about it in the book, well, I'll just mention it broadly and we'll get to each one separately, I guess, residential poor, transient poor. And then that goes together with, as we, as I mentioned before, is Ches Kaskal, being part of a community. What did it mean to be part of a community? Yes. Not like it is today where you're just, I'm part of the community, I live here. So um, talk about that. So, wonderful. Let's start actually with your last point of Ches Kaskal. Chazkat Kahal is a status. It means I have a chazaka, that I'm an official member of the community. And it's something very interestingly that gets passed down from father to son, sometimes also from father to daughter. It depends on the community and how regulated it is to get Chazkat Kahal. So what do I even mean by that? If you go to Poland, for example, which is a place I don't study, it's easy to get Chazkat Kahal if you have enough money. You pay the taxes you need to pay and then you're in. But in the German communities, especially in Frankfurt or in Worms, it's just not like that. Think about what I said earlier about the street. There's one street. There's only so many houses. The city says we're only letting in so many Jews. And once the Christian authorities regulate how many Jews they're going to admit in officially. Now here I'm putting a very big emphasis on the word officially. The Kehila can't give you Chazkat Kahal without the permission of the municipal Christian authorities. And so one of the things I did actually in this book at one point was I found couples, just related back to marriage, who wished to marry. There was a limit on the number of Jewish couples that could marry in Frankfurt. Only 12 Jews could get married a year in Frankfurt. Talking about a community in the 18th century that's 3,000 people. Only 12 couples can get married. When you get married, you want to get chazkakahal, if you can, from your parents. And so you have to apply for that, not just through the Parnassim, but then the Parnassim bring your names to the city magistrates. And one of the cases I found, there were couples, they sort of got married without permission, they came to the Parnassim, and the Parnassim go to the municipal authorities and they say, you're not getting ches kakal, you never should have gotten married, what are you doing? And it's really interesting to trace the records from the Yiddish to the German and, and see how that works. So ches kakal is the most important status one can have in a kahal because it gives you rights, a right to a place to be buried, a right to be protected if there's a libel against you. It's, it's critical. It also comes, of course, with responsibilities, paying taxes, etc. So let's let's get to the question of the poor. If you're a poor person and you have cheskat kahal, and of course you, you might be poor and, and have cheskat kahal, maybe your house burned down on fire, maybe your grandfather cheskat kahal, but you are not so well off you are entitled to the highest level of support from the community. They will pay for your medical care. They will pay for all kinds of needs that you have. And actually the way that they do it is, is that they're very, very careful that you don't experience any shame. They're extremely careful and extremely respectful and discreet in supporting um, these poor with Cheskakal. Now, I just, I know you want to do it one by one. Let me just clarify one thing. I don't want anybody here to think that every person that lives in a community has chazkakal. There are many, many people who live in a community, maybe even for 30 years, that just don't have this status. So they're long-term residents, they're part of the kihila, and yet they're different. They don't have this chazaka. And while it might not get expressed, let's say, in, in a place like Frankfurt, where all the Jews, the poor, the wealthy, the Rothschilds, I, literally the Rothschilds, are living in one street, and you can't show off with your house and you can't show off with your neighborhood because everybody has in the exact same boat. Um, it gets expressed in other places, at rituals, 
in the Memorbuch, where only the Jews with Cheskat Kahal are written in, and in the cemetery, where the Jews who have Cheskat Kahal are buried in one area, and the Jews without Cheskat Kahal are buried in another area. So it's really, really interesting and a, a critical element, not just of charity, but of communal life more broadly. Now, of charity, as you said, and you can, I guess, take these together, there's a big difference between residential poor and transient poor. They're very different if you, if they, and, and even then, I think, right, you, there's a difference between if they were residents, so if they, were, were they Cal or not, but they both lived there versus someone that didn't yeah, live there. So absolutely. all of that. Okay, okay. So I mentioned already the poor who have Cheskat Kahal, and they are treated in many ways the absolute best. Uh, I'll throw out one more example. Um, in Altona, you get an actual stipend, a kitzvah. If you live there and you're poor, they give you they give you money and they support you X number of times a year. There's an old woman, her name is Zipper, and she's sick, she's poor. Until the day she dies, they pay for somebody to live with her in the house as an aide and take care of her as she's, she's an elderly sick woman. Now, there are also many people who live in the kahal, like I said, who are who don't have chazkat kahal. And they are also not necessarily wealthy. And, and one of the major categories of these kinds of poor people are what I call in the book, the laboring poor, the poor people who work in the community. Uh, this might be students who come to the community to study in the yeshiva um, or as a malamed in somebody's house. It's also many, many single maid servants. These are Jewish girls who need to earn money for a dowry so that they can get married. And they come into another, another family's home. They work as cooks. They work as maids. They work as nannies. And they work there um, to earn money toward a dowry so that they too can eventually marry. Many of these girls come from small towns and villages into a larger community such as Frankfurt. I want to give an, an, just a, a sense. I found by, by counting up all the maids, I have this wonderful source in the archives where I know who was in every single household at a certain moment in time when the Christians came to check, actually, who was there without Cheskat Kahal. It's such an important category. And I found in the 18th century, 500 Jewish maidservants living in this kahal. It's like 17% it's, it's of, of the kahal, the students and the maidservants and the, and the male servants as well. And how does this have to do with charity? These are girls who are working, but the community also gives them support. So in Altana, in one of the Pinkasim, we have this wonderful entry where a, a maidservant who remains chaste and then gets engaged, is entitled to an extra stipend from the community to also give her a boost toward the actual wedding. And um, here's another place where we see Cheskat Kahal, a maidservant who has Cheskat Kahal, because of course there were also poor people with Cheskat Kahal, as I said, gets extra money. A maidservant who works in the community but doesn't have Cheskat Kahal gets a little less money. But this is one of the aspects of tzedakah, and these people are treated well. So you have maidservants, you have students, you have melamdim, you also have uh, teaching assistants who are called the helper. These are young yeshiva bachrim who come in and help the teachers teach. They are very poor and this is how they work. And they work also in order to earn money in order to get married. And you have other communal employees. The community, for example, hires poor people to take care of the cemetery, to take care of the hektesh. Um, and they get a place to live in exchange for their work. They don't get chaz kakahal but they have a place to live in exchange for employment. This is the model that we see in early modern Europe, also in Christian towns, that they want the poor to work. And so the Kyle hires guards, watchmen. So 
So someone might live for 30 years in a community as a watchman. I have one example of someone like that. And um, he still doesn't have Chaz Kakao, but he's an important person in the Kehillah. You'll see him every single day when you go in and out of the gates because the, the community had, had gates going in and out. Just to give a sense, these were not necessarily pleasant jobs, taking care of a cemetery, taking care of the sick during a, an epidemic. That's something I think everyone can relate to right now. It's dangerous. Um, being firefighters, if, if the fire rages and the houses are made of wood. So uh, this is what the poor people do, the lucky poor people. And that's um, the support they get. Uh, should I go on to the transient poor? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you can go on also, you can even say a little bit more about that story with the guard, how this is a story with other transient poor, that someone, someone came in there and they have a whole story. They were like, yes, yes. Um, so first I'll explain who the transient poor are, and then I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that's a wonderful source, one of the best ones in the book. Um, so the transient poor are people who have no cheskat kaha whatsoever, not in any place. And they also, it's hard for them to find a place to live. It's hard for them to find a place to work and they wander from place to place seeking support. Now, this is a very difficult position to be in. These are the, the poorest of the poor and they face two sets of difficulties. The first set of difficulties is within the Jewish community. Let's say you're a Kehillah, you're a Gabbai Tzedakah, you have X number of money to give out. First, you gave money to the poor with Cheskas Kaha. Then you give money to all the residential poor. Now you have all these poor people trying to come in you just don't have enough money. And so they have to make a hard choice. They have to prioritize and they cannot prioritize these foreign poor. They can support them. They can put them in hectage. They can feed them. But we see, and we see them sometimes giving them money. But more often than not, they say, you can stay here and here's some money and some here's some food and some money to go on and go somewhere else. And so these poor Jews are very, very poor. Um, some of those poor Jews do get very good care. I just want to put here a, a note, an asterisk, and say that pregnant women who were poor in the community and also transient poor, when they came to the hectage, the community paid for their midwife and their postpartum care. This is something that we see in, in all the log books. And we in the Pincast for the hectage, we see babies who were born in the hectage. And these are the babies of the poor. Um, and so, so that's really what you have. That's the first problem, a limited budget. The second problem that these poor face is that during this period, the Christian government banned begging house to house. They don't want beggars in their city. This is connected to what I said earlier. They want poor people to work. Otherwise, they don't want them there at all. And that's the policy in a city like Hamburg. They say no beggars. All poor have to be working. They have to be in an institution. This is part of the institutionalization of charity. And so it's not as if the Christian magistrates of Hamburg say, we're not going to let uh, Christian beggars, but Jews, you do whatever you want. They live in the same city. So the Jewish beggars are also not allowed to beg. And so these Jews who are beggars have a very, very hard time because they have a challenge both culturally and also getting into the city. And there's just not always enough money to go around. I found one case of a Jew who actually totally falls through the cracks. I find him in the criminal records. He's 30 years old. He doesn't. He's from a small, tiny town not far from Frankfurt. He has no chazaka anywhere and he's completely homeless. And they find him trying to break into somebody's house. And he says, I've been living in someone's garden for eight days. So there are these Jews that aren't even getting the little bits that the transient Jews have. Um, now, you asked about that, that source. It's, it's interesting because um, one of the things that I, I'd like the listeners to, to appreciate is it's really hard as a scholar to write about poor people. 
because poor people do not have time or money or the luxury to write texts. They don't write books for us. They don't tell us how it was. They're too busy traveling from place to place, trying to find a job, something to eat, a place to sleep. And so the way that we learn about them as historians is to really look at charity and see who got, who were the recipients, and then try to work backwards. Um, and that's what I do throughout the book. And I think people are getting a sense of that, so the, the various poor people that I mentioned. But I did find one amazing source. It's a Yiddish song that was printed. And it's a song, we don't know who wrote it. In a minute, you'll understand why it was anonymous. It's a song that attacks the character of the guard in Frankfurt, whose job it was to decide who gets to come in and get support and who doesn't get to come in. And they say, he's such a jerk. Even the Christians let us in and he doesn't let us in. And it's pouring and it's thunderstorming and it's hot and it's cold and we suffer from the weather. And this guy doesn't, doesn't let us in. Um, and you really, it's, it's the only source where I have the poor person's frustration of not being a allowed entry into a kihira. Uh, so it's a very wonderful source. Now, what's interesting is you could read it against the Pinkasim too. And then you see, wait a minute, this guard who himself was probably not very wealthy, found himself a place to live in a job. And that's what makes him different from these transient poor. The fact that he has a home, the fact that he has a job, he has a terrible job. He has to say no, because it's his job to not let people in so that the Gabbai Tzaka doesn't have hundreds of Jews coming in saying, I need this and I need that and I need the other thing. And remember, everything is very regulated. If you come as a guest to a Jewish town and you're not a very important person or someone with a relative, there's a system of vouchers called pletin, which are given out to um, the poor or, or visitors who are not wealthy. And it enables you to eat either at a communal institution or at somebody's house. And so people really want this. It's a way to get food when you're on the road. And not everyone can get it. There's just not enough to go around. And so by reading these sources together, you can really hear the frustration of the very poor and especially the transient poor and also the frustration of the kihila. It's not out of ill will, but they cannot possibly help everybody. And so it's a very complicated situation that they find themselves in. Right. Um, I think we covered a, a lot of the stuff. I don't know if there's any other specific topics you want to mention, but I would say in something else that I, I you alluded to earlier and I forgot to mention, so I'll mention it here. You do discuss a little bit of, of women and there's a um, female Gabba stuck, I think Gabba Oat, you write, and, and that they, they, they're like a woman's shul. I'll talk a little bit about that because I thought it was a bit interesting. Yes, that, that is a wonderful element of, of, of working with Pinkasim. You see not only the men of the community, but by working with the entire community, you also see the community's women. Uh, I mentioned earlier the wives of the Gabay Stakan and some of the things that they did. But aside from that, there were other women who themselves were, as you mentioned, Gabaot, responsible for certain tasks within the women's shul. What does it mean a women's shul? Um, everyone has in their mind a different shul and a different configuration. Sometimes a woman's shul would be a building connected to the men's shul with windows in between the men's and the women's sections. Sometimes we're talking about galleries, um, even multi-floor galleries, on one on the entry level and one higher up that overlooked the men's shul. But in all of these communities, you have a men's shul and a women's shul. And uh, they call it often not the Ezra's Nashim, but a Beit Knesset Nashim, which is why I'm saying a woman's shul. I mentioned already that they had a stuck a box, a, a kupa right outside the women's shul as well. But inside the shul, 
you have women who are in charge of collecting charity from the women who come there to Davin. And it's very interesting because the women from these communities actually come to shul during the week. This is something actually we know from the memoir book that we discussed earlier when they praise various women and they say, and she came to shul for chakras and for mariv during the week and also on Shabbos. And, and this is a normal thing to see. And so many women come. And so they collect charity also from the women in the women's sections. And the Gabaot are in charge of that money, which is really, really interesting. Um, we even have an example in Hamburg from one of the Pinkasim from the 17th century, where poor women from Eretz Yisrael write a letter and they ask the women of Hamburg to create a special fund for them. And the women of Hamburg do just that. And in their shul, they collect money from the women for the widows and the poor orphaned girls who need money for Achnasas Kala. They, they, this is what they collect for. And it's specifically by the women for the women. So that's one element of women that we see. Uh, one more thing that I think uh, I'd like to mention is I talked earlier about the, 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 the topic of honor and charity. And, and we talked about a man having an aliyah. Uh, this is, of course, linked to a custom that still exists today of, of buying mitzvot. So uh, you, could, you could be the one who gets psicha this time or an aliyah at that time. And um, that was certainly the case in the early modern period. And Simchas Torah, they had very set rituals where the Gabbai Tzedakah would auction off to the highest bidder as a way to fill the coffers. Um, of the community charity test, uh, all of the different mitzvot. And there's a parallel uh, ceremony that takes place in Worms, where the women also, after Mincha and Shmini Atzeret, are going right into Simchas Torah, and they're dancing with the wives of the, of the Chasen Breshis and the Chasen Torah. And then they have their own sale of mitzvot that are performed by women. Now, I'm not talking about aliyahs, but other tasks, such as um, making the candles for these shuls, for both the men and women's sections, organizing and folding the wimples, you know, uh, the cloths that go wrapped around the Sefer Torah that are brought for every baby's birth, bringing water, drawing water for the shul that would be used for all kinds of purposes. Think about Birka Kohanim, you need water. There, there are no sinks. You have to bring the water. The women drew water. So bringing water for the shul was a pious act. Even sweeping the shul was a pious act. And so the wealthy women purchase these mitzvot in their own sale as part of their acts of charity. They're very active um, members of the community, particularly in charity. We also have examples of women's chavrot, women's confraternities. Uh, it starts with the, um, with the chavr kadisha, obviously. And then women are involved in other uh, activities of chesed as well, especially with Bikr Cholim and other related uh, mitzvot. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful lens into women's uh, religious lives. Right. As, as you said, a social historian, so you really get to see the day to day life. So fascinating. I think we, we covered a lot and there's, there's, there's more in the book. Um, and, I, and I will include the link to the book in the show's notes. Um, I guess as we tie up there's anything I missed that you want to mention, you can mention it also. I mean, how, how is, you know, I guess I'm going to ask this, but even though I know probably what you'll say, but how, you know, how is this relevant today? What can someone take from the book, you know, actually learn it and say, okay, you know, so, some things, like you said, still selling alias, they still do many shuls, especially Yom Nerayim and Yom Time, they still do that. That's still things that are done. But, you know, otherwise, what, what can someone take away practically from the book? So I, I'll stick to the practical, even though I will, I will say that a reader of this book will recognize certain elements of, of, communal life and certain minhagim and other ones say, wow, 
I've never heard of that, and I'm not necessarily so upset about it either. Um, now, in terms of the practicalities, um, some of the dilemmas that we see in these early modern communities deeply resonate, especially today. So you have a limited budget, even as an individual. So how do you choose which tzedakah to support? This is a choice you have to prioritize. That's exactly what we see the Gabayim doing when they struggle and they say, we have to give the ones with Cheskakal and then we have to give the ones who are residential. This is my neighbor. And how can I say no? These are the deliberations that I think individuals who give charity still have today. Another example, a community might have a sudden need. Let's say today it could be a corona pandemic. And all of a sudden there's a lot more poor people or people who lost their jobs or need help of all kinds of sorts. Someone is ill, someone died and now a family, uh, we're talking about orphan children. In, in early modern times, we would be talking about maybe about a fire that destroys many homes or a, a high tax that all of a sudden is levied on a Jewish community. So what do you do? How do you quickly raise funds in an emergency situation? I'll give you one example of a very creative uh, step taken by the authorities in Altona. After the, the city authorities in Hamburg banned begging, the community has a real problem because they still have very poor beggars and they have to give them money. Only now the beggars can't go house to house and get it themselves. They need a new way to raise money. And so what they do is, uh, this will actually bring us full circle to some of the things we talked about. They say the only people who can get an aliyah are married men. Why? because a married man has enough money to pay for his aliyah, and then we'll get more money in the kupa. So what, when you read a pincas and you think, why all of a sudden are only the married men getting money? It is a sign of status, but it's also connected to economics. They need the money. And it's right after the decision to ban begging. They also say anyone who has a seat in shul, because this is a time period where everyone has an official seat in shul, and that's where you sit. You don't sit somewhere else. Sometimes, actually, to bring us really full circle, if you do something that really upsets the Parnassim, they will say, you can't sit in your seat for three years. And it's a sign of shame. It's very organized. So they say anyone who has a seat, he has to pay a certain tax. Um, and that tax will help us support these poor who absolutely can't beg anymore. So these kinds of of techniques of how do communities raise money? How do communities get people to pay what they pledge? How do communities or individuals make decisions? I think these are issues that, that are very, very familiar. And it's interesting to see how people dealt with them 500 years ago. Absolutely. So just to finish up, what are any current or future projects that, I, that you're working on or planning on working on? So I am uh, continuing my work on daily Jewish life and communities in two different projects. One is... Um, looking at the lives of men and women by looking at the spaces of the community, the cemetery, the mikvah, the shul, the men's section and the women's section, um, and focusing on the pinkasim that deal with space. And another is continuing uh, my look at documentation and paperwork. And I'm, I'm working on a project that looks at the documents that Jews needed to travel and to cross borders, which they did really all the time. So those are two things that I'm working on again as an attempt to really understand the nitty gritty of how Jews lived in the past. Very interesting. Okay, so I will, like I said, I will link to the to the, this book in the show's notes. And thank you very much thank for you. joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure.